Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. My book, Relentless, is now available everywhere books can be bought online, including Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Try your local indie bookstore too, and if they don't have it, they can order it. Just ask them. The reviews are streaming in, and I'm so thankful for the positive feedback, as well as hearing from people that my memoir has impacted them positively. It is not enough to be resilient. You have to be relentless. You can go to therelentlessbook.com for more information. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Natasha. Today, we have a very special and unusual show. We usually do interviews with fascinating entrepreneurs. Today, we get a peek into a scene from this entrepreneur's life. Entrepreneurship can sometimes seem all-consuming. It's fun stressful, and oftentimes our identity. But there are other aspects of an entrepreneur's life. Personal, family, hobbies. Today, I want to share with you one of the most challenging events in my life. A low inflection point with glimpses of awe and magic woven throughout. I believe we should share our stories to demystify the impossible, to own up to the challenges, to teach and learn from one another not just about what we're experts in within our businesses, but also our lives. It all meshes together and you can't completely compartmentalize to exclude one from the other, but we don't wear our vulnerabilities on our sleeves. It's not cocktail talk, nor is it networking etiquette, but maybe it should be. We'd go a lot deeper much faster if we skipped the surface level talk. I was just with the group of entrepreneurs that for the most part hadn't met, that are members of the Inc. Magazine Masters Group. We all gathered at the Modern Elder Academy in Baja, Mexico, led by the brilliant, funny, and dapper Chip Conley. We were firmly bonded as a group within the first 24 hours. How did this happen? I've been studying this and will let you know when I figured it out completely. But I'll tell you this. I didn't know what many of these people's businesses were, and I didn't care. What I learned about them first was their deepest feelings, challenges, and what made them uniquely them. So today, on this episode of Fascinating Entrepreneurs, I will share with you a bit of what happened to me as a young entrepreneur, just a few years into founding my core business, Entire Productions. This is from my book, Relentless, Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream, starting on page 123. Chapter 10. Debuts. My sleep. At nine months pregnant, I made my debut with the Oakland East Bay Symphony. With a crowd of 2,000 before me, the orchestra began the haunting introduction to My Sleep, a song I had written. Hand on my swollen belly, I began to sing. You came to me in a dream last night 
debuting as a violinist, but as a vocalist. The entire orchestra was playing a song that I wrote. I was shaking and not in the best voice, but loved that I was performing this piece with my unborn baby inside. I could imagine telling him about the performance when he was older, showing photos from that night, pushing the hair back from his sweet face while singing the song a cappella for him. As we went into the chorus, my baby kicked and I knew he could feel the music all around us. I caught his tiny foot and massaged it back to rest. At 37 weeks pregnant, I began to feel contractions and reported to the hospital. The maternity nurse called my OBGYN. She was told to give me a shot of morphine and send me home. I turned down the shot and returned home without seeing a doctor. Why would they offer morphine to a woman over nine months pregnant? I was so sick and miserable that I sent eight-year-old Bennett to stay with a friend. The sickness lingered for two excruciating days, and at one point, I became so weak that I had to roll off the couch and drag myself to the bathroom. I couldn't eat and was dying of thirst, drinking gallon after gallon of water with no relief. Monday came and I crawled to the car and somehow made it to my doctor's office on autopilot. She passed a sonogram over my stomach, and I waited for her report. The silence shot a wave of fear through me. You can't find a heartbeat? I asked in the frailest voice. You need to get to the hospital, my doctor said. Can you get yourself there, or should I drive you? The hospital I was supposed to go to was 30 minutes away, but there was an emergency room just steps from her office. I was delirious from pain and confusion, so I didn't ask why. I waited in the doctor's office for Greg to pick me up as she passed me in the hallway on the way to see other patients. We sped over in his pickup, every bump twisting my tortured body with pain. Sheer grit carried me into the hospital and up to the maternity floor. I whispered my name to the clerk and passed out onto the gurney. A nurse pulled me out of my clothes and into a hospital gown, hooking me to a bank of monitors. Beeps, blips, it was all like a dream, fading in and out, voices in the room. A tall Indian doctor entered and examined me. Oh, no heartbeat, he said, in a soft and lilting tone, almost musical, so sorry, no heartbeat, so sorry. I faded away again, stirring to hear one nurse ask another, Fourteen vials of blood? Are you sure? When I woke again, Jeremy was standing at the foot of my bed. If my brother is here, it must be bad. I turned and threw up a thick, oily black substance. Jeremy held his phone to my ear. I'm sorry, my mother's voice said. I love you, Tasha. I opened my mouth to reply, but nothing came out. If my mom's calling with those words, 
I must be dying for sure. The information came in pieces. Protein in her urine. Blood pressure 135 over 110. Liver failure. Kidney failure. The brain shuts down with major organ failure. You can't make basic decisions like calling 911 or demanding to go to the emergency room 20 feet from your gynecologist's office door. But what about my baby, I asked. The hospital gave me a strong dose of magnesium to prevent a stroke and Pitocin to induce labor. I lay for hours waiting to give birth. Early in the morning of March 4th, Aiden was born, weighing 8 pounds, 5 ounces, and 21 inches long. Although his lips were a cold shade of blue and his skin jaundiced, Aiden was absolutely beautiful. He had a full head of brown curly hair and the tiniest elegant fingers. I held him briefly before falling back to sleep. For the next 24 hours, we all held baby Aiden, Greg and his parents, Bennett and my dad. Then they took my sweet baby away. My health got worse. I was visited by a revolving door of grief counselors and doctors of every discipline, nephrologists, perinatologists, hematologists, and occasionally my OBGYN. I felt nothing. No pain, no fear, no sadness. I could not eat. I could not cry. I could barely speak and was only able to sip from a straw held to my lips. Family and friends filtered in and out of the room. My dad stood guard to make sure no one lingered too long. Flicka brought me a boombox and a stack of CDs. Nurses drew blood every four hours to the point where they had to start looking to my feet for usable veins. One doctor mentioned dialysis, talking about it as if I wasn't even in the room. She's not going on dialysis, my dad insisted. We're going to figure this out. He knew I was unable to advocate for myself and began asking more pointed questions, pushing back, making sure I was a priority and not just rolling over to the best guesses and whims of the medical staff. At some point, I decided I needed to try to get up and walk. My friend Rebecca was there, and she helped me sit up and swing my legs over the side of the bed, holding my catheter bag so it wouldn't get tangled in my feet. Crisis reveals who your real friends are. I tried to stand, but my legs were spaghetti, crumbling under the slightest weight. Rebecca plopped me in a wheelchair and took me for a spin around the hospital anyway. After a week, it was time to be discharged. The ride home was surreal. Everything felt dangerous, traffic zooming around me, tall buildings looming, ready to crush my bones to dust, everything a threat in my most weak and vulnerable state. Greg helped me into my apartment. We were never married, nor did we live together at this point. But a new kind of romance began to take shape, sweeter, deeper, and more meaningful than before. Going through disaster either pulls you apart or pushes you together. Thank God, Greg pressed in, becoming my protector. Even though our baby was stillborn, he was still a father. The grief was massive, but we would find a way forward together. 
I wasn't capable for caring for Bennett yet, so my dad stayed to help. She was having a hard time coping, trying to wrap her young mind around all that had happened. Every night she would wail, and I would pull her close against me until we both found some level of comfort and peace. I was still afraid that death could strike at any moment. In that beautiful space between awake and asleep, I would jolt upright, gasping for breath, fearful and unsure of whether I was drifting off to sleep or dying. My father wanted to pursue a lawsuit against my OBGYN for negligence. She knew about the protein in my labs, the high blood pressure, signs that something was terribly wrong. Lawyers warned that even if we did win, we could only expect a $30,000 settlement at best. We learned that was the maximum value of a baby that died before birth. Had he taken one breath outside of my womb, it would have been a much different story. To me, that would only add suffering to tragedy, so we let it go. The doctor knew what she did. She would have to live with that knowledge for the rest of her life. Aiden's bassinet was still set up next to my bed. I would open my dresser drawer and look through his clothes. Pooh bear onesies and tiny shirts with rainbows and balloons on the front. I knew I should be grieving, crying, screaming, kicking that dresser through the wall. I hurt for my dad. I hurt for Bennett. But as for my own loss, I could not feel a thing. Greg visited every day and a nurse acquaintance stopped in to check my vital signs. When Greg mentioned holding a funeral for Aiden, I just pushed him away. Even though he found a burial plot and chose a casket, I refused to set a date. Finally, a mutual acquaintance named Liz walked in, sat before me, and in a tone both loving and stern, said, Natasha, it's time. We are having Aiden's funeral on March 17th. When you are shell-shocked and dead inside, Sometimes you need someone to take control. On the day before the funeral, Greg told me he was going to the morgue to see Aiden. I couldn't even fathom such a thing. Bennett caught wind of his plan and demanded to go. She wanted to see Aiden's toes and read, Guess How Much I Love You and Good Night Moon to him. There was no way I could go through with that, but Bennett made me. Somehow, even at her young age, she understood that in order to heal and move on, we had to say goodbye. The morgue was dark and cold. Aiden's body was displayed inside his tiny casket, along with blankets from his baby shower, little stuffed lions and giraffes, notes from family and friends. Bennett reached into the casket, picked Aiden up, and carried him over to me. I sat there, cradling him in my arms staring at his beautiful face. I did not know what to expect, other than the worst, thinking that my baby would be frozen or stiff with rigor mortis. But he was not frozen, only cool, blue, and so very peaceful. Bennett unbuttoned the legs of the onesie and pulled out his teeny foot, her fingers holding his toes. We took turns holding him, reading the words. I love you high as I can reach, across the river and over the hills. For the first time, I was able to cry.
Aiden's funeral reception was held on the waterfront at Bay Farm Island on St. Patrick's Day. A bagpiper played Amazing Grace, and over 100 people showed up to help us say goodbye. A priest from the Episcopal Church performed the service. I sent word that I was burying my child and didn't want to hear anything about God or Jesus, but he read from the Bible anyway. That really pissed me off. I told Bennett we could leave without watching the casket being lowered into the ground. She stiffened up. No, Mama, she said sternly. I need to bury my brother. I have to see the casket go down. After the funeral, my dad had to return home. Before he left, he sat at my piano and played Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a song we used to sing together when I was a kid. I tried to sing along, but my voice was weak and cracking. It felt like music was over for me. I could not imagine standing on stage smiling in the face of what had happened. It didn't feel like I could ever be happy again. Greg stopped by the next day. We're going to the pool, he announced. Get on your water shoes. You're going to walk with me. I still felt like a zombie, but went through the motions since I was too exhausted to object. The water felt good, swirling around me. Moving felt good. Feeling good felt good. Greg got me swimming again after that. Swimming, focusing on breath and form, all the metaphors of water and baptism and resurrection. I don't know if Greg thought of any of it that way, but he knew I had to get moving. You know what, Tosh, he said one day? You should come with me to Masters. Masters was a practice group of hardcore swimmers made up of mostly previous swim stars in high school and college. They did two-a-days, practicing in the pool at 6 a.m. and again at 5 in the evening. Greg was the fastest swimmer in the Masters group. The one to beat and the nicest of them all. I'm the antithesis of you, I told him. I can't even finish one lap. How can I be in the Masters? Just come with me, he said. You'll be fine. We went three or four times a week, and even though I was weak, everyone encouraged me and welcomed me in. I needed community, and over time, I got stronger and faster. After one morning swim, Greg announced, Hey, I signed you up for the city meet. Oh, hell no, I replied. You've lost your mind. I'm just now getting to where I don't freak out sticking my head underwater. There's no way I can dive off the edge into four feet of water. Greg was unfazed. You can do it, he said, grinning. Watch and see. There I was at the city swim meet in Alameda, California. Me, the shy, snot-nosed kid from Iowa who couldn't even go underwater. Wearing a swimsuit in public, no less. Life is so insane. The pistol sounded. I sucked up courage and swam my best breaststroke and a beautiful but sluggish freestyle. I did not win. I did not swim fast. But one year after my son's death, I dove in and swam with all my heart. Victory is not the most important thing. It's the struggle and fight, the lessons we take from our scars. It's getting back up when life has kicked the absolute shit out of you and you cannot find a way to go on. But somehow, you do. Somehow, you learn to live again through love, support, friendship, laughter, and reaching down to help someone else along. That's a key part, 
helping others. I knew what I had to do. Make good on my promise to Bobby Sharp. If you want to know who Bobby Sharp is, you're going to need to read the rest of the book. It's quite the adventure. As I record this today on March 4th, it is the 20th anniversary of the death of my son, Aiden. Recently, I had what I can only describe as a vision of Aiden. It wasn't him at any certain age or body. It was more like his essence or spirit. I don't typically use spiritual or metaphysical speech, but I can't come up with any other way to describe it. He was running around, happy, and turned into Steph Curry, which I thought was funny because knowing his dad and his energy and athleticism, that didn't surprise me one bit. I'll leave you with this. As entrepreneurs, we love the ups and downs of figuring stuff out in our businesses. We want to scale and grow both our companies and our minds. We meet each other at events and don't even scratch the surface. But there's so much more beneath. I'm not saying that we start off stating our worst-case nightmares mid-handshake, but perhaps we start to go intentionally deeper with each touchpoint after. And perhaps one day, you too will want to tell the story of your life in the hopes of cathartic expression, helping others, and ultimately leaving a legacy after you're long gone from this physical world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. 